Hello. Oh my goodness, there's something in my eyeball. Hello, and welcome to the ADHD Dive, the show that's not about ADHD, but is filled with proof it exists. My name is David J. Mund, and I'm going to teach you a little bit about me today. Isn't that fun? You came here, you went, what's this podcast about? ADHD? ADHD is in the title. Maybe I'll learn something about ADHD. And then you show up and you go, what's this bald man going to tell me about? He's just going to talk about himself for a half hour to 45 minutes. And then you say, all right, I'll listen. I'll give him a shot. And I appreciate you for that. So here we go. So first of all, hold for one quick second. Gus, could you do me a favor? Gus, go lay down. Go on, lay down, bud. Go lay down. Thank you. He's just bumping stuff. He's already bumping lights. I don't know if you just saw that shift around. Um, so yeah, the, sort of the main thing I wanted to talk to you about today is this uncomfortable feeling that I've gotten as I've gotten closer to episode 50 in this podcast. Um, I feel like there's a lot of pressure building to be good <laughs> or to have substantive conversation every single week. And I got to be honest, I don't think that's entirely possible with mm, just the lack of interesting things that happen in my life. Um, but I think I could provide some sort of avenue where I make the interesting things of your or of the past seem relevant to where I'm at now. So um, I, I figured we'd talk a little bit about my creative history one second. I think a lot of this video is out of focus. Give me just a moment. Update. It was not. Uh, anyways, so I've talked a lot about my creative journey over the years, some of the jobs that I've had, some of the creative endeavors that I've been on. But like, where does that begin in my life? Is there an origin story to my creativity? Is there an origin story to everyone's creativity? Or does it just kind of happen and then whatever? So, I don't know. I'm struggling to figure out what it is that I want to do lately. I do a lot of cinematography. I've been doing some product photography. I, of course, do the podcast. I miss acting. I do a little bit of directing. But none of those really feel like things I'm, well, of course I drum, forgot to mention that. None of those really feel like things I am, like I have to do. I must be creative at all times. Not necessarily every single day or every minute of every day, rather. But like, I am creative. And when I do not apply that creative potential to something often, um, I just get stuck in this depressive lull. But I don't think that is the case for everyone. I think plenty of people can just meander, go about their day, do their typical nine to five if it's not a creative gig, come home, eat some food, and just watch television until they go to sleep and then repeat the process every week, every day. And I'm actually not bashing that if that is something you see potential in yourself to be able to do. Because that must be nice to not worry about half, having to 
make things every day or impress people for no reason or like having to constantly check your ego man that must be nice i'm sure of course it comes with its own problems and stigmas and whatever but that's not what we're talking about today we're talking about why i feel the need to constantly be doing something even if that something sucks objectively so to throw it way, way back, some of the earliest glimpses of creativity that I can remember when it comes to like the public sphere, I don't necessarily just mean like making macaroni art or drawing something in school or whatever, just like being outside of the box creative in a way that my peers weren't doing. And that started with way back when, uh, maybe when I was like, gosh, it could have started around the time I was like seven. Yeah, probably. Um, my grandpa, my mother's father moved to Florida and he, well, eventually he moved back from Florida, but then he moved back to Florida again. Anyways, at the time he was in Florida and so we kids didn't see him very much. And so before there was like this, at least to my knowledge, before there was this digital camera type, there was, you know, your typical camcorder that recorded to tape. Um, and you could buy a roll of film, pop it in there, shoot X amount of footage, and then you'd go to your local Walmart or something along those lines to get the footage either printed uh, or the video you could get put on a tape. I don't think there were um, DVD. I mean, there probably was DVDs, but it was much cheaper to put them on tapes at the time, which we were doing, um, which is crazy to date myself in that way because that must have been 2000. Yeah, maybe 2000. I know DVDs existed, but they weren't like huge right then. Um, anyways... Uh, my cousin and I would make, using that camera, these little skits and sketches to be like, hey, grandpa, this is us doing X bit. Watch us now. And we'd like, some of the earliest things I remember is like, we would set the camera out in front of my front door so that it was shooting out into the front yard and then we would just run as far away from the camera as we could get while still being in frame. And then we would like fake sumo wrestle because we thought that it was funny. And all of this was done in like, all of this was done to entertain my grandpa. Yes, it was fun for us as kids, but we did have an objective. We did have a goal. And that was to, when my grandpa got this video, make him laugh. So we were doing... That kind of stuff. I remember we did this like old people sketch, which when I say sketch, I literally just mean like, hey, let's be old people. Okay. Hit record. And then we just do that voice as long as we can because we thought that it was funny. And yeah, we're like seven, six, maybe. Um, and I remember it wasn't just that we would send those to my grandpa. It was that before... They got sent out. My mom would have like the rest of the immediate family over. So like my cousins, 
mom, which would be my mom's sister, her husband. So like the aunt, the uncle, and then maybe some local neighborhood friends. And before we sent that tape out to my grandpa, we would all just watch it. And I remember getting immense joy out of watching the whole room laugh. It, it, were they laughing at me? I don't know. I mean, I was seven, so there was probably some like empathetic, ha ha ha, you guys are so silly, ha ha. But also a lot of it was probably this fucking seven-year-old thinks he's hilarious and he's not. And that's funny. Um, but whatever. Supportive family. They were all about it. They let us send that film out. They let us shoot whatever we wanted. And yeah, we do that kind of year after year. It wasn't just the one time. We probably did it for at least three or four years. And then once that started, I remember just keeping that camera and shooting everything I possibly could. I remember, oh yeah, some of those sketch, sketches or skits or whatever that we did were like we would get my sister and my brother and we would legitimately film someone doing a karaoke something karaoke um my sister had this karaoke machine growing up that would, had words on it and you could put like a certain cds in there that would project the words on the machine or whatever oh gosh this is nostalgia as hell or nostalgic as hell but anyways um all of us would sing our own individual songs we'd like film the full three or four minutes of the song and then we would cut over and all of us would be, well, three of us would be Paula Abdul, Simon Cowell, and Randy Jackson from American Idol. And we'd take turns being those characters and judging and ranking them. And we were always trying to be nice. But I remember judging my brother hard at the time for whatever reason, just because I was an older brother. And every time I was like, let me be Simon when it's Jacob's turn. So when it was Jacob's turn, I would just rip him to shreds. I'd start like, you know, that was good if you're a fucking dog something like that <laughs> that was a little more gordon ramsay than simon cowell but whatever i loved it and, and yeah i remember that making the whole family laugh and so of course like you chase that high as a kid you're just trying to entertain people as a kid and the thing that gets you most accepted is the thing you ultimately end up wanting to do right maybe that's a projection maybe that's just me identifying my own story as being like, well, that's what happens with everyone. But in my particular instance, the thing that I think happens with everyone ended up being that I got really interested in trying to make people laugh or entertain people or more specifically make things that people watched that then entertained them. Um, and if I guess as best as an origin story can be made, out of whatever that is that we did, that would be kind of the first glimpses, the first little montage of a kid getting interested in the thing that he's going to ultimately end up doing with the rest of his life. And that was just me making sumo wrestling and old people and American Idol sketches with my siblings and cousin to send to my grandpa in Florida. So that's cool. All right, y'all. If you're watching the video version, see that skull? See this, this is not a punk house, it's a punk home banner. All of these things are available at catandcrew.com. That's right, they're the first sponsors. Catandcrew.com, enter the promo code MONDAY, it's MONDAY, M-U-N-D-A-Y, 
to receive 10% off of your final purchase. You can get those koozies, you can get banners, you can get earrings, you can get coasters, you can get skull planters. I think it's really cool that they decided to um, give ADH Deep Dive listeners an exclusive deal um, because, you know, it's cool that we're building a little audience here and that you guys get to have some uh, sort of special perks that nobody else gets. Um, so if you aren't familiar with it yet, go to catandcrew.com, enter the promo code MONDAY, M-U-N-D-A-Y at checkout, get 10% off your final order. Uh, okay. Back to the show. I think, uh, from there, some of this is a little more familiar if you have listened to this podcast. Um, I don't think that I have a structured order on this piece of paper. All I wrote is that all roads lead to MUND, and I think that's what I'm going to end up titling this episode. (laughs) Um... Yeah, the <clears throat> the earliest, I think that is probably where it all began creatively. And then from there, this is where the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none thing kind of started. Because I joined band, band class, in the sixth grade. So, of course, this is the distance between seven years old and the sixth grade. So, what is that, five or six years, something like that? Um, So I'm sure there's plenty of creative things that happened in the middle there. Um, But there was also a lot of like, I think I've talked a little bit on the show about my youthful rage. And if I haven't, maybe there's an avenue in which I talk about that a little more intimately. (coughs) But yeah, I was a grumpy little boy. And so I just don't think I had the capacity to be fun and creative and interesting as a kid until I was given avenues to do so. And that started with band. Hey, hey, Judah, you better be... Ca- <sighs> She's bumping the camera. Judah, you're bumping everything. Cool down. Why don't you cool down? Good girl. Cool down. Uh, anyways. Um, so again, b- between there, I'm sure I was doing some silly, wacky, fun things that some people went, man, that kid would be so cool if he wasn't so fucking angry all the time. Um... But my recollection is that the next creative thing that I really latched onto, yeah, was band class. Um, And I think that it is because I lucked into ending up playing the drums. And I don't know if I have mentioned this, but I think due to whatever, some semblance of general poverty, uh, it wasn't just luck, but it was a excuse me, an intentional decision to shy away from a horned instrument. You go in to meet with the band teacher, who at the time was Frank Youngman, um, who, phenomenal guy, incredibly inspirational man in my life. Yeah, I've done an episode with him on this podcast. I think it's on the David J. Mund channel, if you're watching the video version. Uh, but it was very, very early on. First 20 episodes, I think. Frank Youngman, check it out. Anyways, <clears throat> when you get there, in like the towards the end of the fifth grade, they start testing you for like, well, what are you, what's your propensity? Like, what are you capable of? Can you keep a beat? Can you buzz these little horned instruments? And through some back and forth between like gauging a kid's interest <clears throat> and general sussing out by the instructor when you show up to school the next year which is the middle school which is a totally different building at the school i went to um 
Sorry, I just took a hit of my pen and it's residually uh, scratching the old throat. Um, but when you get there, you find out basically what Frank decided for you. Um, but I think that happens maybe a month or so before you show up because parents have to buy the instruments and stuff. Anyways, I remember showing up to class and finding out that I would be playing the trumpet, which meant not just that I would be playing the trumpet, but that my parents would need to buy a trumpet or rent a trumpet. And <clears throat> whatever, I don't really need to go into the specifics of why. Maybe at some time I will. But at the time, uh, my parents did not have the money to rent or buy me a trumpet. Um, especially because my sister was already in school and she was playing a woodwind instrument. Um, and they needed to buy one for her. Um and whatever, I don't really need to explain. All All I'm trying to say is that we did not have the money for a trumpet. And I read that situation. I don't think my parents ever said anything to me about like, we can't afford for you to play the trumpet. But I do remember telling Frank, like, I don't think that my family can afford a trumpet. So if possible... Is there any way that I could switch instruments? And the cheapest thing in my brain was a pair of drumsticks. I was like, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars or maybe just tens of dollars it is to rent a trumpet. I don't fucking know. I couldn't, couldn't tell you right now how much a trumpet costs. But I know that a pair of drumsticks can cost and did cost at the time five bucks. That's it, five bucks. And... At the time, I didn't have any expectations of the possibility of owning a drum set or owning any drums or anything like that. What am I, 11, 12 years old? I just knew instinctively, and maybe this is sad, <laughs> but I knew instinctively, ooh, my family doesn't have the money to buy a trumpet. There's no way I'd be able to get that thing. And since I have found out I'm playing the trumpet and the onus is on me or my family to get the trumpet, I'm going to tell this guy now on day one, I can't do this. Now, I think I said that in front of the entire class, which, I don't know, when you're young, you don't really understand money in that way that maybe like, I don't know, especially at the time, this is like, whatever, just pre-2008 financial crisis, but money was tight all around, and it was just a thing that you didn't really talk about, Right. Like, I feel like now it's getting a little bit more societally acceptable to be like, yeah, we're all fucking broke. <laughs> like, class warfare, let's let's rise up. But at the time, it's just like, we're all trying to, like, pretend that, like, it's still the 90s and we own our homes and we're starting our family and we're living the American dream the way that it's meant to be done. Um, and so you didn't really talk about money. Anyways, I didn't understand that as a kid. And I was like, uh, my family's, family's poor. And I don't think we can buy a trumpet. Could I play the drums? Now, <clears throat> ultimately, that ended up being the decision that maybe changed things for me the most. I don't think that you would see... I, I wouldn't be doing 90% of the things that I'm doing, I think, if I ended up playing the trumpet. Because if I ended up playing the trumpet, I would have never ended up playing the drum set. 
And when you start, the first two or three years of band class is just the snare drum. He tried to have us learn uh, bell instruments like the xylophone and the marimba and stuff. And nobody wanted to learn that for some reason. I have no idea why. I wish I knew how to play that stuff. It would help translate to the piano a lot better now as I'm trying to like learn how to play the piano. But for some reason, nobody in the percussion uh, wanted to learn or retain the information about playing xylophone or marimba or whatever. So there was snare drum, bass drum. Every once in a while, you'd play the crash cymbals. Um, That's about it. But eventually, of course, all that stuff comes together. There ends up being the need for a drum set in the eighth grade. And then throughout high school, there's a few different opportunities where you can play the drums as a full drum set. Now, mind you, every other grade had someone who knew how to play the bells, (laughs) which was necessary for a full orchestral band. But, you know, I don't know. Nobody wanted to do it at the time. Regardless, if I would have played the trumpet, no way would I have a drum set. No way would I have ended up joining a band, which means I wouldn't have met Midwest Skies, which means I wouldn't end up being in Midwest Skies now, 15 years later. So that that awkward, uncomfortable acknowledgement of poverty out loud in front of the rest of my class and then having my teacher be like, oh, yikes. Okay, well, what am I going to do? Tell this kid, no, you have to buy a trumpet. I guess we're going to shift him over to the drums and then his parents can just buy a couple $5 pairs of drumsticks. Uh, from there, I think the most crucial, uh, important step in relation to what I'm doing now uh, came about, uh, it was also in my mind, the most cringeworthy thing that I've ever done. And then I sort of wish I didn't do, but whatever. So be it. Um, so yeah, I joined band class. That's, that's middle school. That's so like creating those skits and being like trying to be funny and entertaining was the personality that I started finding myself forming through elementary school. Because that's kind of all elementary school is, right? Like learning how to, of course, there's like a basic schooling, educational things. But a lot of it's like social learning, right? Like building friendships and relationships and maintaining connections and managing your emotions. And a lot of that is learned in your youth. So while I felt as though I was bullied um, and outcast and I don't know, whatever. When I was younger, the only way out of that was to make people laugh. Uh, and so it worked, whatever. It's a defense mechanism that you find early on and then it applies itself to your life later on. And then middle school, yeah, is like realizing that I have the potential to be creative musically as well. Um... Freshman year is when Live for Tomorrow started, which I've talked about this a few different times, many times with multiple different guests, but just to whatever. Um, Freshman year of high school, myself, Ethan Hingston, Nikolai Vanstinas, and Eddie Avila all started a little band in my basement called Live for Tomorrow that is still around to this day. 
um, lineups have changed over the years and sounds have changed over the years, but live for tomorrow is still around. You can still find them on Spotify. Good friends of mine still. Um, so that happened. And then sophomore year, I find a channel called a YouTube channel called the Shea Tards, the Shea Tards. Yes, exactly as it sounds. Um, and if you're familiar with the story and if you're familiar with the controversy surrounding Shea Carl after all that stuff, so be it. I didn't hang on for that long. Um, all I mean to say is I found Shea Carl's YouTube channel that he vlogged with his family. He was a YouTuber who did skits and sketches and stuff, but the main appeal, the main reason people knew or know him was, yes, he did daily vlogs with his entire family. And I believe that he lived out in L.A. Um, and was popping during the early days of YouTube. So he was one of the biggest YouTubers at the time. So if you were around in the YouTube culture in those early days, those first five years, you knew him. But as I'm still forming and shaping and adopting a personality, I don't know, I saw, I don't know, I saw that, it, I, first of all, I just saw it as a thing that I wanted to do. I don't know why. Um, maybe it was purely vanity, but I'm still certainly a kid at that time. Um, what, sophomore year... 15, right? 14, 15, something like that. Um, maybe I looked at the views that he was getting on YouTube or whatever. I don't know. I just loved the idea of putting myself out there in vlog form. And similar to how I feel about this podcast now, I cannot imagine that one single second of that those vlogs were entertaining. Um, at the time, I think you would have people who disagreed. And of course, right now, if you're listening, maybe you would disagree with me now. I, this is just a, a self-sabotaging, um, pessimistic, whatever. I hate myself kind of vibe thing that I'm saying here. All I'm trying to say is that why did I do it? I don't know, but I did. Every single day from a good portion of my sophomore year. And oh my God, the most cringeworthy thing is flooding back into my brain. On episode 50, I was so excited that I had been doing 50 episodes, that I had been, that I had done 50 vlogs that I held like a party at my house and it was in celebration of just doing 50 episodes and I was like, sweet, I'm going to invite people and they're going to be in the 50th episode and the 50th episode was done from my webcam in my parents' office at my house. 
And I don't mean to shame my parents here in any way, but first of all, before even talking about my parents' role in this, there were so many people at this thing. I, there wasn't like a, a bunch of people, but I just mean there were many people that came that had never come to any function of mine before that maybe like I always wanted to be. If you look at like the quote unquote popular group in school, I wanted their approval so badly so badly and I just never got it year after year never had any birthday parties never had any freaking whatever class get togethers I just never I never got it and that's fine we're all kids I'm not like dwelling on that I'm just saying but some of those people showed up at my house that day and I think this was my first glimpse of imposter syndrome and just fear, self-rejection, or whatever. I was, just, I felt starstruck. Judah, stop. That I bombed. I don't. I don't know how to explain other than like. So first of all, I didn't have anything ready for anybody. I didn't have any like snacks there for people. I didn't have any food or drinks. And like, I didn't really prep my parents for people to be over. I just said like, I have some friends coming over for this vlog thing. And my parents had just seen me walking around with a camera. And I'm sure every once in a while they were like, look at him, he's doing his thing. But a lot of times you'd always hear me like, hey guys, what's up? Sup? And I'm like doing that upward MySpace angle with a freaking, what is it? The flip camera? No, what is it? The, the little tiny, maybe it was called a flip? I can't remember what it was called. Hang on one second. Judah, go lay down. <sighs> Anyways, uh, so they were there. And I'm freaking out because like, I can tell that they're not having fun and the video portion is only going to be like five minutes. I was like, everybody's going to come hang out and then we're going to do the video and then you leave. I don't know. We were young enough that like, mo I'm pretty sure that most of us weren't drinking or smoking or anything like that. We were sophomore in high school. So like if you did it, yeah, you had done it. Judah, you had done it. Um, but like you weren't doing it constantly to my understanding. And if you were, I was way behind. Um, anyways, but those people were there. I was freaking out. And for the first time, someone had acknowledged to me that like smelling like cigarettes is not normal. Um, and again, I'm not trying to shame my parents here, but they smoked inside while people were home with no windows open it was just we smelled like smoke our stuff smelled like smoke our house smelled like smoke everything smelled like smoke and a lot of people who were over there weren't around that more most of them weren't and so that acceptance i was seeking from everyone was met with judgment and confusion and boredom 
And I don't know, dude, that day, was it a, was it overall a problem? Does like, does anybody remember that? Probably not. But there was something about like putting myself out there and inviting people I knew that I had quote unquote reverence for or envy for over to my house for the first time. And they saw the way that I lived and they saw the way that, I don't know. I don't know. That was a very vulnerable place to put myself. But I did that through a good portion of my sophomore and junior year of high school. And I look back on some of those and, well, most of them, if not all of them, are set to private or have been since deleted. A, a good amount of them were deleted. Um, I think I had like 300 videos at some point that I ended up deleting. And then I then revamped the channel and had maybe... 100 or 200 videos that are now set to private. So 500 to 600 videos of just me saying nothing every day. Now I only do it once a week. Um, but yeah, that was the next phase of it all. In the midst of Live for Tomorrow and all these things happening simultaneously, vlogging was a thing that... But it was also cool. Like, do I regret it? No. Because, I, again, I do think that it led me to where I'm at now, doing podcasting, which, again, why am I doing it? Fucking, I don't know, dude. I don't know. I do not know why I'm doing it. But I'm in too deep. Oh, okay. Let me show you something. So if you're just listening... Quick tangent. That's Judah. That's Judah making that noise. When she first made that noise, it scared the fuck out of me. She did it when she was like two years old. And it just horrified me because it sounds like she's choking on something. I have come to learn over the years that is what's called reverse sneezing where essentially something, either dust or hair, is lodged in a dog's throat or in a dog's nasal passage. And it's like snorting air to filter and then push it back out. So this is a thing that the dog does to clear things from its nasal passage that I thought was my dog dying the first few times it happened. So if you've ever seen your dog do that and you've panicked... If you feel as though you should still see a medical professional, please, please do so. I am not a vet. However, some vets and the internet have communicated to me that, don't worry, your pup's okay. It's just sneezing. And it's weird. And it's not, like, the greatest thing to experience. But they're okay. They're okay. Okay. Uh, I think I'm running a little bit behind here, so I need to speed things up a bit. I've got some more, um, stuff I need to shoot today. If you listen to the last episode, maybe the episode before, I don't remember. Uh, I'm shooting some content for a card and board game company, and I'm currently editing a wedding and we're prepping for th three different Midwest Skies shows. So I'm a busy, busy boy this month. November has been the busiest month I've had in my freelance 
independent creative career. On that note, um, hmm, how do I talk about this one without blowing up someone's spot or being sad? Hmm, let's see. You know what? I'm just going to say it, and you can deal with it. Okay, here we go. Uh, how do I do this one? Okay. Let's just use first names only, even though if you listen, you know. Around my junior year, I think it was my junior year of high school. Uh, well, my sophomore year, I started going to church um, actively. I had gone when I was a kid. Um, and I had gone when I went to my dad's house because him and my stepmom at the time, um, were going to church every Sunday. Um, and that meant youth group after the fact or whatever Sunday school or whatever. Uh, but youth group at Lake city was something I chose to go to my parents, as in my mom and stepdad weren't going to, um, church. Uh, but I chose to go. There's a whole episode on that. I don't stand by most of that, if not all of it, um, but whatever. I was a kid. Anyways, I met a dear friend, perhaps one of my best friends of all time then. <laughs> uh, man, I already feel like shit for talking about it in this way. Uh, but anyways, his name is Mark. Let me preface phenomenal guy, extraordinarily creative person, fantastic dad. I just happen to not talk to him anymore because that's what happens over time. Sometimes people don't talk to each other. You know, you don't talk to all your friends from high school, whatever. Anyways, Mark, um, started realizing that he had a lot of the same interests as me when I, when I met him. Um, he wasn't vlogging, but he knew about vlogs, he was do he wasn't doing like daily vlogs, but he was making like creative videos to himself that only he made for himself. Um, he was acting in this thing that was kind of like like drama competitively, but whatever. Um, uh, he was interested in singing. Uh, his brother is an incredible musician. So when I met them, I was like, "These are my dudes." Both of the brothers. Um, and Thickest Thieves from the start. And he and I started making legitimate, similar to like what I did with my cousins or my cousin and siblings when I was younger, is we started making skits and sketches. Um, some of them were absolute dog shit trash, the worst thing you've ever seen in your life. But every single, wow, excuse me. <laughs> Every single one had a clear, or within every single one, it was clear that there was potential with him and I, creatively. Um, and I think more so, it was very important that in our small towns, nobody was really doing that. So the fact that we were whether you liked them or not, you saw them. Um, 
because social media wasn't as big and expansive as it is now. YouTube wasn't as big and expansive as it is now. Um, and when you're going to school with 40 people and he's in a school the same size, you know, out of 80 people who were sharing it to, maybe 50 people saw that, which means our group was lots of people knew. Sorry about that. Lots of people knew that we were doing it. And again, whether you liked it or not was irrelevant to us. People knew. And so we were identified as the creative guys, the guys who made videos, the guys who made sketches, the guys who tried to make people laugh. Um, and that, I'm sure, I'm maybe realizing now in real time, but I'm sure struck a nerve when I was a kid, when I was, whatever, now 15, 16. Um, it's like I... I am tapping into that young adolescent creative for the sake of being creative, just wanting to make people laugh, just to make people laugh mindset. And we did it every single week. If we met up, well, we would, because he lived like 15 minutes away, but we would see each other every Wednesday because we would be at youth group. So we would either meet right after school before youth group or right after youth group and he would stay at my place and or whatever and then get to school the next morning or whatever. Actually, probably he probably didn't stay over on weekdays until it was the summer. But then usually he would either come over for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday after church he would go back home or vice versa. Friday, Saturday I would stay with him. Sunday I would come back home after church. Um. And every single time we were together, we were conceptualizing a new skit, a new sketch, a new video, um, until eventually we ended up trying to make semi-serious films. Um, I say film, I mean, of course I mean video, and of course I mean short. Um, but like we made, I remember our first, well, I think that our first real attempt at making a very legitimately creative, compelling, dramatic film was when we made our video Drive Away, which even when I look back at it now, we were young and it's cringe and uh, we tried to simulate heroin, but we really just put coffee in a metal spoon and we lit it with a regular Bic lighter. <laughs> We had no idea what we were doing, but we were watching a lot of Breaking Bad at the time, and we were getting into Film Riot on YouTube and learning a lot about proper cinematography, and we just like wanted to make something edgy. Um, and at the time, I remember it, wowing X amount of people. Who cares? There were some people who were so impressed by it that it didn't matter. We were so proud of ourselves. Because, like, I mean, at least our perception of ourselves at the time, I'm sure, was like, I don't feel accepted. I'm just throwing a bunch of shit at the wall to see whatever sticks. Whatever will get, not necessarily eyes on me, but will somehow just like, I don't know how to say it. That doesn't make me sound like a fucking soy boy. But I just mean, you know, I wanted 
We want to be loved and liked and just respected in some way by our peers that we couldn't do other ways. Um, and this was working for us. And so for years, that's just what we did constantly. Um, again, I don't know how to talk about it in a certain way. It devastates me that I don't really, or that we don't really talk anymore. Um, he's an incredibly busy father. Um, and our lives just went different ways. Uh, but I still think he holds every ounce of that potential and, um, I don't know. I would love to make content with him again one day, but it, it just doesn't seem like that's his vibe these days. Um, okay. What, what after that? Oh, I think I talked about this a little bit before from there in my, <laughs> well, okay. In my proper junior year of high school, I was set up to be in a play that I, for some reason, cannot remember the name of. Oh, it was The Sting. Um, it was a, a play that we did in drama class based off of the film The Sting. Um, if you haven't seen it, great Robert Redford film. Uh, couldn't tell you the decade. Probably 60s. Um, casino heist movie. Well, horse race heist movie horse race heist movie yeah um i didn't have a big role i had one of the most minor roles i think i was the train conductor um which is in a scene but regardless a week before the play i um my gallbladder burst inside of me and so i had to have surgery to have it removed what? Anyways, I had to have, sorry, my dogs are being fucking weird right now. Anyways, I had to have gallbladder surgery to get it removed. And uh, I could not do the place. Someone took my place and was able to learn my lines in less than a week. Just to be clear, that's how small the part was. All right, I just had to kick my dogs out of the room because they were roughhousing with each other. Getting grumpy. Anyways, um, I think the last thing I was talking about was the sting play. Pardon me if I repeat myself, but yeah, somebody had to relearn my lines and was able to do so in less than a week. So that was an incredibly small part. The following year, uh, I was in a play, which I am almost hundred percent positive. I've talked about on this show, but for the sake of just clarifying and you know, a nice well-rounded hour episode. Um, maybe even longer than that. Who knows? Um, what the fuck am I saying? I was in a play called The Beatles Slept Here, which was a play um, about this hotel owner who... <laughs> I've forgotten every single bit of this play. I think it had something to do with the fact that the Beatles slept at that hotel and some lady was trying to buy the hotel for less than it was worth or whatever, sell it for her own money. And in order to do so, she convinced the owner that the ghosts of the Beatles had haunted it. And I was one of the ghostly Beatles who was also a gangster, like typical seventies mobster, like uh, greaser. Uh, yeah, the greaser. Um, 
and I was working for this lady and I wasn't actually a ghost of one of the Beatles. I was just convincing this guy that there was the ghosts of the Beatles in this hotel. Um, and I was the comic. Well, I was one of three people in this film who were considered the comic relief. I mean, not one of three, but I was in a group of three. Um, uh, we made jokes about Ringo's ghost not being there. So it was just the three of us. Anyways, and yes, I understand that Paul McCartney and Ringo are still alive. That wasn't the point of the play. Um, what am I saying? I was in that play. Oh, yeah, we were scheduled. We were kind of cast as comic relief. There were other comedic parts and lines and roles and whatever. But most of what we said was intended to make people laugh. That was it. Loved that. It went over. Great. Mm, I just remember enjoying that. That's all I remember. Um, that happened to be my... Oh, now I remember. Okay, so when I said that the Sting play was my junior year, it was not. It was my senior year. But as many of you know, I had two senior years. <laughs> because I never turned in my homework. It'll do it for you. Doesn't matter what you got up here, folks. Turn in your homework, or they won't let you pass. Uh, I'm not holding on to any resentments. I deserve that. Humbled me a little bit. Anyways, so I didn't do the play that year because of the gallbladder and whatnot. Then the following year, no, I'm still wrong. I'm still wrong. What am I saying? What the hell am I saying? All I remember is that, no, that had to be. Who else would have been in it? I'm struggling in real time to remember if that play was my legitimate senior year or if it was my second senior year. I think it was just the senior year or the second senior year because I ended up doing forensics, which is a competitive acting program. And I think I've also talked about this a little bit. All I can really managed to explain about forensics is that there were different categories of competition duo multiple um di which is dramatic interpretation of a film or a play prose which is like you're doing a piece based off a piece of or you're doing and you're acting a piece of literary prose um and i happened to do a duo of the film Good Will Hunting featuring Robin Williams, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck with my buddy Chris Houghton. Um, and that went so incredibly well and validated every little pocket of insecurity that I had at the time about myself in ways that I didn't think were actually possible. Um, that year prior, I had lost a significant amount of weight and so then this year was, I was like starting to like tone a lot of that. This is the first time I had lost a significant amount of weight. To be clear, after this, I ended up ballooning up another hundred pounds. Um, but I was feeling very confident about the way that I looked and the way that I felt. Um, 
I was acting in a serious piece that had elements of laughter, but was never intended to be a funny piece. Um, in fact, right before Chris and I would manifest, like if we can just make one person cry, then we win. Um, and that worked a lot, but yeah, it was just something that I got to do without being confined to the bounds of my GPA. Like, yes, of course I needed to be passing in that class to continue to compete, but my math grades didn't affect my performance in forensics. My inability to hold myself accountable to do my homework at the time didn't mean that when I showed up, I couldn't compete, which was good because we won and we won often. Um, and I just remember that, yeah, that kind of changed things for me creatively because at that time I knew that I was capable of acting and whether that's where my life went ultimately or not, I know that's in there somewhere. Um, yes, of course, it's something I need to practice often to be better at. And I don't get to do as often as I would like to do. Um, but when I do and when I have the opportunity to do it in the way that I want to do it, I feel like I can pull it off. Um, and I needed forensics and drama and those skits I did with Mark and those shitty things that I did uh, creatively to impress my grandpa when I was young. I needed all of those things to lead me and those vlogs to lead me ultimately to where I'm at now as a podcaster and a drummer in a pop punk band and a cinematographer and a photographer and a wedding videographer and I don't mean to inflate the ego by listing the things that I am. I just mean I'm so many things that when you ask me what I am, I don't know what I'm supposed to say or what I do. What do I do? I create. Well, that makes me sound like a big douche. Um, I don't know what I do. I also don't know why I do what I do. I think that if I were pressed into a corner, I would say that I do it because I enjoy it and therefore it is enough. But it's Sunday and this episode comes out tomorrow. And the only reason that it's Sunday when I'm doing this is because Monday through Saturday, I don't want to fucking do it. I don't want to do it. And the only reason I'm doing it on Sunday is because now I have to do it. And I was actually talking with my friend George last night about like, sometimes that feels like enough. The mere fact that I am holding myself accountable to do something every single week, usually, I know I skip a lot, uh, but usually, just about every single week, feels like enough sometimes because once it's done, whether someone watches it, just like the original videos, whether someone watches it or not, whether someone likes it or not, 
I did it. And that's good enough, right? <sighs> so from there is pretty much everything else you've already heard. I joined Midwest Skies. I moved to New York. These are now no longer in chronological order, obviously. I moved to New York. Um, got this camera stuff. Started pursuing this career in a legitimate way rather than just a hobby. Uh, the freaking podcast. And just everything else that I've dared to put myself out there and fall flat on my face while doing. Um, and if you are someone who has... Cueing outro here. Uh, if you are someone who has participated in this journey, even if that's just like from where you're at now, behind the screen, um, you have directly contributed to the validation portion of this, uh, my journey. Um, because yeah, a lot of it is just trial and error and embarrassment and falling on your face and just throwing again, whatever at the wall to find whatever sticks but that sticks is, for better or worse, when that external validation comes. Just when someone tells me like, wow, David, you are good at X. I go one of two ways. Either I don't believe them, first of all, which is the improper way to receive compliments. I understand that's frustrating and annoying and when you give someone a compliment, if they go like, mm, you're lying, shut the fuck up and take the compliment. Uh, but also, the other direction is, like, I want to weep. You think I'm good? You think I'm good? Thank you. I've worked really hard to be good. <laughs> really hard. And I don't care if I'm the best, man. I'm not gonna be the best. I just want to be sustainably good. I want to be able to continue what I'm doing. That's it. I don't want... Well, I'm not gonna say what I don't want. There are many things that I want. But all I need... I guess if you can call this a need, maybe this is a subjective need. I just need to be able to create. I need to be allowed to continue to create. And in this, time is money, right? And there has to be a way to connect these creative interests and passions and hobbies to a sustainable source of income doesn't need to be overwhelming. I just want it to be sustainable. And I know it sucks to always attribute everything to money, but if we go way back when to that shouting out in class saying, hey, I'm poor, can I do something else? And then that changed my life. 
I don't think it's a problem to ask for more. To expect and demand more, I think, gets a little more complicated. But just asking, like, can I, can I please, for just a two months straight, not have to worry about being a couple days late on my rent or sacrificing X expense because I got to buy food this week or whatever. Like, that's not too much to ask. But because it won't just come to me and you can't expect the universe to just give, I am going to continue to bust my ass for it even if that means being lazy every once in a while and playing playing Age of Empires just because I'm burned out. <laughs> Busting my ass means doing everything I can mentally. And I am. And I think that's okay. So, yeah. That was fun, right? All roads lead to Mund. I am who I am because of what I've done. And, you know, I can't change that shit. So the only thing I can really do now is just... I'm going to say it. Keep going. Just keep going. Okay? All right. I think that was a podcast. A decent one. Ah, I'm going to stop. Okay. All right. I love you. Thank you for tuning in. Um, potential interesting guest coming up. I don't even really want to tease who they are, aside from the fact that I don't know them other than the fact that they reached out to me and they are a quote-unquote expert in ADHD management. So that could be interesting. Um, if that's something you could see yourself tuning into and you don't want me to allow my imposter syndrome to tell me no to having them on here, um, let me know. And maybe we'll get them on. But for now, thank you. I love you. Uh, November 27th at the Pike Room in Pontiac, Michigan. We're playing, Midwest Skies is playing with Action Adventure, mm, Cliff Diver, and Keep Flying. December 2nd, we're playing with Searching for Closure, Bring Your Best, and I'm so sorry to the other act, I cannot remember the name, uh, at BMO's in Bay City, and then December 9th at Turnstiles in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we're playing with Live for Tomorrow, Lame Ass Dads, and Years Later for a pop punk Christmas party ugly sweater show so bring your ugly sweater uh proceeds to that sh from that show are going to uh the children's hospital and uh, a variety of humane societies thank you for tuning in i love you and uh, i'll see you next week